Jesus has risen. Yes. I have been looking forward to this day. I had an opportunity to be with part of our fellowship at the 9 a.m. service. It was great to celebrate this great day for us as disciples of Jesus because our Lord is not in the tomb. He is alive. And one day He will return, but He is with us now in spirit and through His Word and through His body, us the church. Amen? Amen. But uh, I just want to again thank uh, the Whiteheads uh, just for their courage, uh, for their incredible example of how we can have resurrection right in our lives, right here. And so thank you so much. I want to thank Sheila for her convictions on another very important area of our walk with God. And I especially want to thank all those who sang today, just using their gifts uh, to help us connect with an Almighty God. You know, we've been doing a series, Simplify, Unclutter Your Soul. And, you know, this obviously is Easter, so we still want to celebrate Easter. But there was a particular chapter that I knew would be perfect for an Easter service. And it is the chapter called, Wounded to Whole. I'm going to ask a question, and I know I'm going to get an answer. And I have a feeling probably every hand will go up. Have you ever been wronged? Okay, so pretty much all our hands go up. And, and I understand that there are many levels of that wrong, but we probably have been. But I think sometimes we think, well, you know, I'll just kind of move on. I'm okay. And the reality is that's a very dangerous thing to do. When we've been wronged, in fact, if the whitehead story doesn't tell you that. When we don't deal with being wronged in any way or how we perceive it, and it's not about pointing fingers, because we're all wrong in some way with one another. It can destroy you. Here's a great quote from the guy who wrote the book Simplify, Bill Hybels. He says, Sometimes we grossly underestimate the true cost of living with a relational rift. We think we can go about our lives unaffected by conflicts and fractures with people we care about. But this, of course is far from true. Relational breakdowns extract energy from us. They take up headspace and heart space. They hang over us like a dark gray cloud. Don't they? Yeah. Ever lost a night's sleep because you were wronged? You're not even the one who's the offender, and you're the one who can't sleep. And probably the one who offended you, you're probably imagining they're sleeping just fine. Which makes it all the worse, right? But here's the problem with wrongs. If we don't deal with them, they become wounds. And wounds, when they fester, will spread. And eventually they can destroy you. See, it's very difficult to simplify our lives if we're carrying these wounds in our minds and in our hearts. You know, Bill Hybels in this chapter from his life as a minister and dealing with a lot of wrongs and a lot of people sharing wrongs and some wrongs he himself committed, he came up with a way, well, how, how do we rate these wrongs? How do we categorize them? Because there are different levels. And so he broke it down in three, and we'll get into more detail, but very quickly, his first category one is minor offenses. We'll define it in a second. Category two... Now that's a little more upscale here. We're, we're talking legitimate wounds. And then we pray by grace, you don't ever get to the third, but I know with this size of group and this diversity, I know we have many in this room who have or maybe currently are enduring the third category, life-shattering 
injustices. Before I explain in more detail, though, I want us to see how important the passion account is for the wounds that are in our lives, for the wrongs that we are carrying in our hearts and minds, because Jesus is an incredible model of how to change the wounds to being whole again. We're going to look at his life as we examine each one of these categories. The passion story is the only way that we can go from wounded to whole. So let's start with minor offenses. These are often no more than a slight, but the offended party loses track of reality sometimes, and as a result, he considers the offense proportionally larger than it is or is blind to the other person's perspective on the issue. Now, I know in these minor offenses, some are intentional, some are not intentional. You know, we had an incredible meeting last Wednesday where we had the 40-plus, but we realized it needs to be 30-plus ministry of disciples and guests who currently do not have spouses. I'm trying not to use the term single because even that was wrong to some people. But it was a great opportunity for the shepherding couples and Leanne and myself to just sit and listen to how many wrongs and wounds there really are. Wounds that we've committed as a body to our brothers and sisters who are not married. I don't think they're all intentional. Some were. Some situations. But a lot of it is unintentional. And we don't realize that those wounds hurt. And if we don't know how to reconcile, we don't know how to heal them, they can hurt us spiritually to where we can never live the life that God wants us to. And it can even be spiritual things that are minor offenses. You ever gotten those Bible texts? You know, where someone sends you a scripture? And you get one like Luke 13 that says, Repent and perish. And then you realize, wait a minute, that's not a group one. He sent it to me individually. What does he mean by that? And you start reading all into it, and and you're offended. And he may have not thought anything, or she may not have thought anything. There was just that was the scripture of the day, and I thought, let me just send it. (laughs) Or maybe there was intention. Then I would say, then don't text it. Come talk to me. But even doing a scripture, we can offend each other. Has anyone experienced that? I've had that a few times. Yeah, it's like. Why are you sending that scripture? What do you... You know, you start reading into it. You know, other times, minor offenses are simply because, not of the actual offender we think who offended us, but because of the gossip and slander of the person in between you. Where they thought you said this, they then share it with you. Now you're offended by that person and they actually never said it. We have minor offenses. So what do we do with these? How... how, how do we deal with this? And it was quite interesting what Bill's suggestion was when he deals with anyone that comes with a minor offense. He says, you need to ask this question of yourself or the person that is venting. Really? Really? You're, you're going to take all this time and energy to worry about that? Turn on the news and compare it to what's going on in the world and this is injustice you want to cry about? And at first you're like, well, man, that's kind of like you're not listening. And, but the reality is, guys, with minor offenses, really, are we really going to put all this energy into something that might not even been an offense, but we're oversensitive? Right. Now, it may have been an offense, but even then, 
Really? Are we going to let that rock our relationships? Are we going to let that ruin our day? See, we've got to learn to deal with minor offenses because they're going to come. Often from the people you love the most. You know, as I was even thinking of this lesson, it's like, okay, can I share the different categories of offenses in my life? And it was funny, I couldn't actually remember my wounds. But I can remember everyone I've wounded. Most of all, my wife. My kids. Churches. Friends. I couldn't really remember how I was wounded, but I could absolutely remember how my wounds hurt people. How what I said offended. Where are you at today? You know, in 1 Corinthians 13.5, it says about love, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. See, when we have a basket, our energy basket or bucket, that we've been talking about is full of love, then minor offenses should just shake it off. You know the song, right? Shake it off. Just, it, it should just shake it off. And yet it's funny, when we react, what it's saying is the real issue is not the offense, it's there's not love in our hearts. Because if our bucket is full of love, it says it's not easily angered. So if I get angry, even of a minor offense, or what I perceive as an offense, the issue is I'm not loving. Now it doesn't excuse their offense. It doesn't mean they're not in, in error. But the issue is how do we respond? Well, in case you feel challenged by this, why don't we look at Jesus? What is Jesus' model to deal with minor offenses? Go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Says to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So he's left us an example, right? And now we need to follow. And guess what example it's now going to get to? How to deal with wounds. How to deal with offenses. How to deal with injustices. And look at what Jesus says, because if we're going to follow Him, then we need to respond the same way. So you've been offended minorly, or worse. How did Jesus respond? It says He committed no sin. In other words, when that initial offense came, there wasn't even a sinful thought. I know when we get minor offenses, I know for me, I'm already having a sinful thought. I may not voice it. I may try to hide it from my facial expressions. But I'm already thinking, oh, God's going to get you. Right? Yeah. Oh, well, justice is coming. But Jesus says the very first thing, the minute He's offended, the minute there's a wound, He commits no sin. And then it goes further. And no deceit was found in His mouth. So when He's offended, not only does He not think of sin, there's no deceit. See, we think the sin when we're offended, then someone's, are you okay? Oh yeah, I'm fine. And we're lying through our teeth. Because we're not fine. We're still thinking about it the next day. But Jesus is no sin, and He's not having any deceit. When they hurled their insults at Him, there's a minor offense, He did not retaliate. When He suffered... He made no threats. If you do that to me again, well, I'm not going to... He didn't do that. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. See, when you want justice, you become the judge. 
But as you judge, you will be judged. How merciful will you be? The question you need to ask is, how merciful do you want God to be with you? I think I want 100% mercy. Then that automatically means I must give 100% mercy. He didn't judge. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then, truly, how only Jesus can take wounds to whole. By His wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Guys, we've got to get to a point that when there are minor offenses, whether they're intended or not, we've got to respond like Jesus. What's the action step that we need to take when there's those minor offenses? Release. Just let it go. Release it. Don't hold on to it. It's coming at you. You might catch it even. But release the minor offenses. They're not worth holding on to. Because everything you're holding on to means you can't hold on to something better. Let it go. Release it. But then we get to the next category, and this one's a little harder. Legitimate wounds. These wounds require both resolution and healing. This is often where the wounded party is truly tempted to cry for justice of some sort. Wrongdoers deserve punishment, right? I'm asking a question. Wrongdoers deserve punishment, right? See, I should have let you read the quote first. Before you answer that question, wrongdoers should deserve punishment, right? Look at this quote by Bill. The trouble with that sort of thinking is that it doesn't give the depth of satisfaction the aggrieved person thinks or hopes it will. And focusing our energies on revenge-seeking does not lead to a simplified life. As understandable as it is to want the people who hurt you hurt us to pay in some manner, justice-seeking alone never leads to relational peace. Doesn't work. So what about Jesus? How did He respond to legitimate wounds? We're not talking minor offenses anymore. We're talking legitimate wounds. Wounds like someone who lied to you. Wounds like someone betrayed you. Have you ever been betrayed? Someone ever been betrayed? It hurts, doesn't it? It it does something inside here. It's like it breaks. You can be betrayed by the closest people and complete strangers, and yet it's funny, it hurts more from the closest people. An enemy or a stranger, their betrayal is just, oh, that's an offense. But man, when it's someone close to you, now it becomes a legitimate wound. But what about Jesus? Was He betrayed? I think so. When we look at the Passion account, we find this interesting passage in Luke 22. This is where Peter has denied Jesus three times. But on that third time, something really interesting happens that Luke records. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Now I know you all say, Well, Jesus told him what would happen. Yes, that is true. But don't you think Jesus, still in the human body, 
felt betrayed. Yeah. I mean, only hours before, Peter said, I will die with you, Lord. And for some reason, at that moment where he denies him the third time, the praetorian are bringing Jesus out to the courtyard, and as the rooster crows, you could see the crowd divide. You could see Peter's eyes coming in contact directly with the stare of the Lord that he had promised he would never deny. And he had betrayed him. And here's the challenge with legitimate wounds, is sometimes you don't get the opportunity to resolve them. That would be the last time Peter would see Jesus before his death. Have you ever been wounded by someone, and even though they're the offender, you're still carrying the burden because you never got to resolve it? Imagine what Peter felt like, because it says he went and wept bitterly. And all he knew up until Sunday morning is he would never get to resolve it. Jesus was dead. That's the scariest thing when you don't get to say the last words or you have to remember the last words you said that you're going to regret for the rest of your life. That's where Peter was at. He was the offender. Jesus was betrayed. And when you're betrayed, man, you, you, there's just this temptation to want to get back at them or let them sit in their pain. Am I right? Or am I the only one that acts that way? No, I think we all have that within our heart. But what about Jesus? How did Jesus respond to this? But what's amazing is that Sunday morning as we're celebrating today, Jesus rose again. And when He rose again, He knew that there was not a, a resolved relationship with Peter. He's resurrected and what is He thinking about? I've been wounded by Peter. And this needs to be resolved. We've got to bring this to some kind of resolution. And so he tells the angels, hey, when the women see you, make sure to tell them, and especially, specifically, Peter. Yeah. What? Yeah. Here it is in Mark 16, verse 6. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen! He's not here! See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see Him, just as He told you. Jesus resurrects, and what's the first thing He does? He wants to make sure Peter knows. You thought you couldn't resolve this? You thought it was too late? That you betrayed me, that you wounded me, and there would never be an opportunity? Guess what? I'm back. There is an opportunity. There's a new chance for us to have the relationship that we both desire. Make sure to tell Peter. And if you put the chronological story together, Jesus actually appeared to Peter several times. One time individually, it was what the letter in Corinthians says. And Peter didn't resolve the relationship, even though he was the offender. But Jesus didn't give up. Jesus continued to appear to him, to give an opportunity. But then finally we see at the end of the chapter, last chapter of the Gospel of John, what do we see? Jesus pulls Peter aside after they were gone fishing again. Because that's what happens. When our relationships are in a rift, we go back to our old life. We go back to our old habits, our own fears and pains and insecurities. But he pulled Peter aside like, Peter, do you love me? Three times. Because Jesus understood there's a wound here. 
There's a legitimate wound in our relationship. You're the offender, Peter. But I care so much about this relationship, we are going to resolve this. How are we like Jesus when we have legitimate wounds? And I know there are legitimate wounds in this room even amongst ourselves. I may even be the one who wounded you. I may not even know it. Jesus didn't wait for Peter. Jesus went to Peter. We're going to have wounds, but if we don't deal with them, how can we ever be made whole? Now, I understand in some cases, you can't do anything about it. You do your best and the other person can't. Well, we'll get to that on the next real category of wounds. But we have to have an action step if we want to simplify our lives. When there's legitimate wounds, we've got to address them. But we ultimately need to resolve those legitimate wounds. We've got to come to resolution. Now we come to the one that none of us want to experience. By the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, maybe some in this room have yet to experience it. But these are the life-shattering injustices. These are unthinkable tragedies that can forever change the outcome of one's life. Things like adultery, major illnesses, death of a loved one, a child, a spouse, abuse of any kind, emotional, physical. These are just some of the possibilities. These are very difficult to overcome, but not impossible. They require require only something Jesus can give us to get through it. To go from wounded to whole. Adam Hamilton in his book, Forgiven, Forgiveness, Finding Peace Through Letting Go, he describes it as actually two dimensions of forgiveness. And I think so often we only land on one of them and don't get to the second. He says this in his book, There is your eternal release of bitterness, anger, or desire for revenge. And there is the extension of mercy toward the one who has wronged you. Regarding your release of anger, bitterness, and desire for revenge, you must forgive. The more serious the wound, the longer the process may take. But failure to forgive, in this sense, gives power to the one who wronged you. It is you, not they, who are hurt by your unwillingness to forgive. But in the second dimension of forgiveness, extending mercy to those who have wronged us, we may actually harm the wrongdoers if we extend the mercy too quickly. Wrestling with the hurt they have caused is part of the redemptive process. And for Christians, redemption should always be the goal. We saw that lived out in the Whitehead story. Mike had to see the level of the wound. If there was just a quick, I forgive you, that transformation would have not taken place. So guys, forgiveness is not easy, but it is absolutely expected as a disciple of Jesus. Now I know that in this room there are levels of of these kinds of life-shattering injustice that I cannot relate to, and I'm not going to even try to. Unless I've been in your shoes, I can't. Let's just be honest about that. And there are different levels of injustices that some of us have endured, some more than others, some repeatedly. But when you compare your injustice to Jesus, then none of us have a right 
to retaliate. None of us have a right to not forgive. If you want to pick the greatest life-shattering injustice in the history of humanity, it is what we did to Jesus on the cross. Luke 23, verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Him there, along with the criminals, one on His right, the other on His left. Jesus was innocent. And some of us, in our life-shattering injustices, may also be innocent. At least, innocent in that offense. But we're all guilty in being the offender toward Jesus. Yeah. All of us. Yeah. It doesn't matter what that sin may be. It doesn't matter what level or consequence. We are all the offender when it comes to looking at Jesus. Now, I'm not trying to belittle or soften the the pain or the angst or the agony or the depression or the discouragement of your injustice. But when we stand before the cross, we have no right to retaliate. We have no right to not offer forgiveness. Jesus was standing in front of trained killers. These weren't, well, I think they're okay, good guys. No, they weren't. They were trained to kill and to kill with efficiency and kill with pain. In fact, I bet Jesus, as He saw them there before Him, as He crucified Him on that cross, as they're putting insults, as they're now trying to to play a game to win His clothes, He even knew that in their heart they may have actually enjoyed it. That's injustice! That is not fair! They deserve punishment! They are wrongdoers! They have offended Jesus. And look at Jesus' response to those particular individuals. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Stop for a minute. Yes, they do. They know what they did. They killed them. Or maybe there's a whole other level to our sin that we're not watching. I don't think Jesus is referring to them murdering Him. Jesus wasn't even referring to their injustice toward Him. When Jesus is standing before these criminals and these soldiers and they're killing Him, He's not even worried about the offense He's received, the wound He's getting. He's concerned for the wound they are getting because of what they're doing. He's going, these soldiers, with with desire in their heart to hurt, with with love for just blood, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know that this sin, that this lust for, for evil is separating them from me. Father, forgive them. No matter what our injustice is, if we're supposed to walk in the steps of Jesus... I don't know about you, I'm extremely challenged. I have no right to demand justice. I have no right to retaliate. I have to not just forgive their wound for me, I've got to actually be concerned for the wounds they are having in their spiritual relationship with God for the sin they are putting toward me. That was the level of forgiveness Jesus displayed on the cross. If there's a singular, incredible moment of the Passion account, this has got to be it. He's innocent. 
And yet he's concerned about the very one murdering him. I don't have that level of forgiveness. But I'm called to. You're called to. And when you start making this personal, man, this shows you the true power of Easter. You're the offender. You're that soldier. And so when Jesus is being offended by you and your sins, your, your sins you want to do, not just the sins you don't even know about. Because there's sins you want to do, even when you know they're wrong. And what does He say? Father, forgive Haley. She doesn't know what she does. Father, forgive John. He doesn't know what he's doing. Father, forgive me, you, us, for we don't know what we're doing. Wow. That's just a sobering thought. What's the action when we have these injustices? Well, when you look at Jesus, you've got to reconcile them. Now, I know you may do everything right to reconcile with someone who's offended you and they may refuse to reconcile with you. What, what do you do then? How, how do you deal with that? Well, first of all, you've got to know that you, you obeyed God. That you did what you could. And now you've got to leave it in God's hands. You know, Romans 12, in uh, Romans 12, 18, I didn't read it earlier, it says, if it is possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So whether they respond, whether they reconcile, we've got to do our part. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus is about to die. He's not going to be able to actually reconcile with them. They're not choosing to reconcile with Him, but He still did His part while He's dying. It's like, well, i got one more chance to reconcile. I don't know if they will. I don't know if they'll respond. I don't even know if they care. But you know what, Father? Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then He was dead. And yet those same soldiers said, truly, this was the Son of God. How powerful forgiveness is. Why are we carrying around these injustices that only Jesus can heal? Why don't we forgive? We've got to reconcile life-shattering injustices. I want to close with Colossians 1, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free of accusation. If there's a condition, you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the Gospel. Guys, some wounds, whether they're minor offenses, whether they're legitimate wounds, or even life-shattering injustices, only forgiveness and reconciliation is the way our wounds can make us whole again. To where, rather than being alienated, Jesus makes us holy. Rather than being an enemy, we are without blemish. Whether we are evil, 
He now says we're free from accusation. We need to imitate Jesus this Easter and every day henceforth. We need to release the minor offenses. We got to resolve legitimate wounds. And we got to reconcile whether or not they choose to life shattering injustices. But if you want to know how to do all that with just one word, it's really quite simple. It's the most powerful thing Jesus did on that Easter weekend. Forgive. That's what we have to do. If we want to go from wounded to whole, we need to forgive. Only then can we move to a simplified life. Amen? Amen.